0: Well, this is the first Sunday of the month and of the new year, and as just is the rhythm that we do things here at State Street, our kids will be with us (laughs) the entire time uh, up here. And so uh, if that distracts you or is a problem, I guess I'm sorry. Um, But I'm not really that sorry, to be honest with you, because I like our kids being here. Um, I think it's good for them to see their church family worship together. Um, Later on, we'll celebrate communion together. I think it's good for them to see their church family and their moms and dads uh, be obedient to the scriptures and partaking of communion, too. So uh, they will be here with us the entire time. If you've got a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to take it out to the book of Ruth. And we are just continuing this morning in our uh, series through Ruth. If you remember at all from just our past, really three messages that we preached out of here, we've heard of individuals such as Naomi and Elimelech, Malon, Chilion, right? And this whole family moves to Moab to avoid a famine in Bethlehem. But while they're in Moab, Malon and Chilion get married. So we're introduced to Ruth, who's married to Malon, and later on Orpah, is married to Chilion. And then as life happens at times, when this family thought things were going great, um, kind of it begins to take a turn in a different direction. See, Emelech, Malon, Chilion, they all die while they're there in Moab. And so life was not supposed to go this way, but now Naomi and Ruth and Orpah find themselves uh, without husbands, really without family, and at least for Naomi in a foreign land. Time comes, Naomi decides that she is going to return back home. The famine's ended, and she tries to tell her daughters Ruth and Orpah, look, just go home. You don't need to come with me. Go back, maybe find husbands, have a life. Orpah decides that she'll listen to Naomi's wisdom and goes, but Ruth clings to Naomi and returns to Bethlehem with her. And while they're in Bethlehem, Ruth tries to simply just provide. She goes off into the field by herself to simply glean, to go after the harvest workers, to pick up whatever she might for food, yet by God's providence, she gleans in the field of a man named Boaz. And as her and Boaz meet, It even appears that Boaz actually shows favor to Ruth. Boaz says, look, come glean in my fields. He gives her a meal, even gives instructions to his workers. Look, as you're going, take some of this grain, just leave it on the ground for Ruth to get when she comes through. See, right now we're about halfway through the story. So if you have a Bible with you, Ruth chapter 3, we read the whole thing this morning, verses 1 to 18. This is God's word. It says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do all, I do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight in the morning, and if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went to the city. And When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Let's pray. Lord, as you uh, just give really, truly a few moments of our week, and you speak through your word, I pray that, that you would accomplish great things. Father, may your word be buried deep within us. May it be brought to our minds and to our hearts at times when you see fit, and may we cling to its truth in your name. Amen. Over our time spent together studying this story of Ruth, we've seen Naomi develop a heart for her. Certainly, Ruth has shown compassion and a willingness to work and provide for herself, and also Naomi so it seems understandable, at least, that Naomi would feel a bond that's deeper than just merely a daughter-in-law, mother-in-law bond. See, like most good relationships that exist, it seems that they actually want what's best for each other. And we know this because simply in verse 1 of chapter 3, Naomi says, look, I want to seek rest for you, that it may be well with you. See, this brief, quick statement really is an expression from Naomi, that Ruth would be settled. If you remember, again, back in Moab, Naomi said, Ruth, go home. Go back to your people where you're comfortable. Go back, find a family. And Ruth objected, went with Naomi, and now Naomi again says, I want to seek rest for you, that it would be well with you. And this brief statement, really the expression is, is that Ruth would find marriage, that she would have children, that she would be cared for. See, Naomi seems to have some sense, it appears, of obligation or commitment to see this come to fruition. To say it simply, Naomi cares about Ruth and cares about what will happen to her. And then what we see next happen in this story of Ruth is this seemingly elaborate instruction given by Naomi, really with a hopeful intent to bring to fruition security and provision, For Naomi and for Ruth. I don't know about you, but as you heard this story talked or told, if you've perhaps heard it before, it seems odd, doesn't it? This whole plan of Naomi. Um, It seems weird. That's not how we would do things in today's culture. But before we conclude that, this plan is just strange. We have to remember that context matters. We know the story's written somewhere around 1010 B.C., all right, things have changed a little bit since then. I don't own a threshing floor, and, and those sort of things are not happening. Right, so this, this plan, it actually is very contextual and makes sense in the context of which it's given. The plan was for Ruth to go to Boaz. Where's Boaz? Well, he's at the threshing floor. Right? He's winnowing barley. What does that mean? It means he's separating the grain from the shaft. It's a fascinating process if you kind of dig into it. Right? They actually used wind. I think it's outside the city of Bethlehem, so that wind would play a factor. So as the this, this separating takes place, a, a, a simple breeze would take the shaft and blow it away. You're left with the grain. The plan was to go to Boaz, who would be sleeping there. Why would he sleep there? Because it's a culture of, of unrest. It's political unrest. Safety is not a, a welcome commodity that everyone gets to experience. So Boaz is there to simply guard the grain. It's his field, it's his product, it's his crop, it's his livelihood. He's there to take care of it. It's pretty normal if you think about it that way. The separating process, again, done in the evening, this breeze would come up and it would take place. She says, look, go and and trust me, Boaz will be there. I'm not sure if you've been to Bethlehem, if you know Bethlehem of today. You have to kind of descale it in your mind, okay? Bethlehem is not... 2019, Bethlehem, that's jammed full of tourists and the Western Wall and right, AR 15s at the ready. It's a simpler place. There, there's less people there. Even when Christ was born, there was less people than today, certainly. And so, the, why would Naomi know where Boy is going to be? It's a small town. And, and people know about people. Do you remember when Naomi came back to Bethlehem? Man, she was celebrated. Well, why? Because it's a small place. It's family, it, it's simple. Says, look, as Boaz sleeps, uncover his feet and lie down, and just simply follow whatever Boaz says. Just follow his leading. I think there's some temptation here to, to think that this is a, a plan of deception or even conspiracy. But it's not. So you don't forget that Boaz has already shown favor to Ruth and to Naomi. And Naomi knows that Boaz is a close relative. If you remember back in chapter 2, verse 20, it said, And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, meaning Boaz, whose kindness was not forsaken, the living or the dead. And Naomi also, Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. See, so there's this plan that's being conceived and then worked out it's not deception. It's actually just a walking out of a very biblical process. See, Boaz is considered a redeemer. See, redemption is bound to kindness. It's really at the heart of the story of Ruth. The word redeemer or redemption appears 23 times throughout the story. And really, the book of Ruth describes two legal institutions in one practice. Right? The law of Moses didn't require this to take place, but there were options. So there's two redemption processes taking place in the story of Ruth. The first is this, property redemption. The second would be uh, Leverite marriage. See, property redemption was possible by a relative to come and take over to assure the land would not remain in perpetuity perpetuity outside the family. And the marriage redemption involves really a childless widow, Marrying her husband's brother to simply provide an heir for the dead husband. And there's even an order to all this, right? Redemption order would have been like a brother and then an uncle, if that's not available, a cousin or perhaps a close clan relative. You see, surrounding the plans for Naomi of Naomi for Ruth is actually a plan of redemption. It's really a plan of rescuing. It's not to simply find a husband so you can be happy and joyful again, but it's a complete redemption plan that's taking place. See, if Boaz takes Ruth for a wife, really the hope of rest for Ruth that Naomi has can be achieved. And not only rest, but but maybe, just maybe, Ruth could even find joy and happiness again. Perhaps joy could be regained Or maybe even just finally found through redemption. See, I think in so many ways, the story of Ruth and Naomi is similar to our story. See, if you remember, if you could way back before Christmas remember, as we talked about chapter 1, this is the beginnings of the story of Ruth. Right At times, life does not go as planned. Even good intentions can really have disastrous earthly consequences. Perhaps you kind of think back over just your year, month, or even your week. There are things that you likely, you thought you were going to go east and all of a sudden they turned and they went west on you. Not all were maybe catastrophic. But all, even the small circumstances in our lives that don't go according to our plan are a reminder to us that some things will simply happen beyond our control. That despite our best efforts... We may be looking at a scenario and asking ourselves, what can we possibly do now? What can we do now? And that's really where we find the story happening. Ruth and Naomi encounter a situation that they did not anticipate themselves being in, and they ask simply the question, what can we do now? And what we see is that Naomi and Ruth are doing their best to move forward. I think it's important because I think life happens in in ways that we don't anticipate or understand. And there are times where, honestly, all we can do is just pray and ask the Lord to somehow work and heal and and fix and solve. But I believe there are other times where, as we're doing that, God is asking us, look, you've got to move forward. You've got to walk this steps out. You've got to decide whether or not that you still trust me in this moment. You have to decide whether you think that that who God claims he is is still true. And if it is still true, then then you've got to keep walking ahead. See, as we mentioned before, way back in chapter 1, when all this disaster takes place of death in a foreign land and life not going according to their plan, there never seems to be an attempt to turn from God. God. There does not seem to be any reference here from Naomi or Ruth or anybody else involved in the story a sense to blame the Lord for all their problems and all their trials and just simply to walk away. But rather, there seems to be an engagement that as they keep walking the process out, man, if this is the Lord's doing, then he'll bless it, then he'll walk with us. So Ruth goes along with the plan. The one that Naomi instructed her with. And so she goes to the threshing floor, and sure enough, Boaz is there, and he's asleep. Around, uh, he, She uncovers his feet. Right? Listen, that's just a ploy to wake somebody up. That's all that is. Don't read into that, okay? And it says, around midnight, Boaz wakes up, a little bit freaked out, Startled. Burt chapter 8 and 9 says, At midnight the man was startled, turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. I've been woken up by a four-year-old at like two in the morning. We were woken up last night at three in the morning by a seven-year-old. And there are numerous emotions that rage through your body in that moment of anger, (laughs) Confusion, some fear, some concern. And here Boaz is, is waking up saying, Who in the world, what is going on? What is happening? This random person is now laying at my feet. My feet are cold. And when he asks who it is, she begins to give instruction. Essentially, what takes place next is, is Ruth really is actually proposing to Boaz. Boaz. When she says, you are a redeemer. This idea of spreading your wings over me, as Ruth's request, is an expression to symbolize, look, take care of me, protect me. This is Ruth's marriage proposal. And what we see next, to me anyway, is nothing short of God's gracious hand at work in the life of Ruth. Let me read it for you again, verses 10 to 13. It says this And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. My fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it's true, I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer near than I. Remain tonight in the morning. If he will redeem you good, Let him do it. But if not, if he's he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Now lie down until the morning. See, in this response to Ruth's request, is actually the acceptance of of Boaz. And what we see happening here, what I think one of the main things we see revealed in this portion of the story of Ruth is the character of Boaz. He recognizes that there's another redeemer, one that's closer than he would be in the, in the family line to Ruth to carry on that family name that she married into. And Boaz's counsel to Ruth in that moment, look, is remain here for the night. Before your brain drifts, there's no indication of, of anything happening outside the context of marriage. There's no premarital interaction that way. It's simply he actually has her best intention in mind says, look, there's someone close to me. Let's just let's see what's going on there. If that Redeemer is interested and, and wants to take his rightful place and let him do it, and if not, then I will be happy to walk through this, this avenue with you. It seems that one of the most notable parts of the story, again, is Boaz and his response here. Certainly the actions of Ruth are to be admired, but please don't miss the details surrounding Boaz. He's already shown kindness to Ruth and Naomi and allowing Ruth to glean the fields, He's given Ruth protection, extra opportunities to glean through the process. And now we see a response of redemption to be extended towards Ruth, but also we see the character of Boaz being exemplified. His pledge is that he'll look in the matter and that he'll do it thoroughly and he'll come back with the proper answers. And again, he cares about her reputation. In fact, later on, we're told that he wakes her up early in the morning to send her out so that no one would know she was there. This is not a plan to protect some conspiracy theme, but really to protect their reputation. There's no indication anything sexual took place, so we don't need to worry about that. But let's be honest, people talk. So his intent really is to protect his reputation and to protect hers. He says, let go while it's dark. But before you go, let me give you this food, take it with you, bring it back to Naomi as well. See, what we know is the reputation of Boaz and Ruth, it matters to Boaz. See, Boaz's character matters to Boaz. His integrity are actually, I think, defining markers of who he is within this grand story of Ruth and redemption. So we, I think we, we have to ask ourselves what about our reputation? Do we care about our reputation? Specifically this, if we claim Christ, what about our lives is identifiable as being marked as His? In other words, what's different about you or about me than the nice-doing, kind-hearted, generous person who does not yet know Christ? What is it that marks your life as being redeemed and restored to your creator if you're claiming Christ today? The scriptures certainly have a lot to say about the conduct of the life of the follower of Christ. For example, 1 Peter 3, 13 and 16 says this, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So Peter's encouragement here is not only for you and for I, for in Christ, to be zealous for the things that Christ calls us to do, right? Be zealous in doing good. But that if suffering should come, we shouldn't actually fear that. But rather, in our suffering, in persecution, be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. And Peter says, look, if you're slandered, I mean, look, if you're trashed, people talk about you behind your back, and they're just trying to tear you down constantly— then those who bring the claims and insults upon your behavior in Christ, they actually will be put to shame because your motives are pure when you are zealous after the things the Lord is after. See, your character and your integrity as a follower of Christ, it has to be of the highest regard. I can remember just growing up when I was younger in youth group and, and just kind of, we walked this idea and just what is integrity Right? And just, I still remember just a simple definition, man. Who you are when nobody else is looking. Like, like who you are when, when no one else is around. Who you are when your boss entrusts you with a task and, and doesn't check on to see how you're doing every five minutes. Man, wh- what kind of decisions you're willing to make when you know that only you will know that decision in that moment. And it can go from everything, right, as it's impact, from the simplest to who am I when I drive a vehicle by myself and the person in front of me is going 10 miles an hour under the speed limit and I'm running late. And my response in that, right, that that actually is a revealing of my character. I don't like that it is a revealing of my character. Even the other day when driving with my whole family, I said to Kim, I probably should stop calling people idiots. (laughs) But ultimately, what does that reveal? It reveals that I actually kind of think something about myself compared to somebody else, truly just based on driving habits. See, our character is what guides us in our decision making, our character is what guides us in what we think is right and is wrong. Our our character is what really is kind of that, that compass that will lead us in circumstances we anticipated and those we did not. Again, as if you claim Christ today, your character has to be of the highest regard. And here's why. Because all that we do as followers of Christ is sacred. Everything we do as followers of Jesus is sacred. All we do is representing the saving and changing work of the King of Kings in our lives. So how you are as a student, man, that's sacred work. Right? For my kids who've trusted in Christ, it's sacred for them. They may not recognize that yet, but it is. How we are as neighbors, family members, employees, who we are when no one's around us, those are sacred moments. See, there's no division in life for the follower of Jesus between sacred and secular. Perhaps you've heard those phrases just in Christianity, church culture. Like, that's secular things. That's secular work. I mean, any job that's not ministry-connected. Look at, for the believer in Christ, you don't get secular work. You get work that's sacred because you've been redeemed. You don't get the luxury to say, that's not the Lord's. This is my time. You don't get that luxury. And so that's why I feel like the church culture actually done, has done a really disservice to people when we told them, look, just say a prayer, ask Jesus to come into your heart, and everything will be okay for eternity. That's not a true acceptance of the gospel. The gospel is trusting in Christ as our Lord right, and Savior. So we like the Savior part, but we kind of gristle at the whole Lord part. Because you have to put yourself really in a time like Boaz, right? it was his field. He was Lord of that field. And so if he, if he ever told his workers, that woman named Ruth cannot be in my field. Guess what? Ruth would not be in that field. And so when we say we want Christ to be Lord of our lives, what we're saying is we want him to have free reign to say, hey, that part of you is not great because it doesn't show me very well. That person in your life is not helpful for you becoming more like Christ. Evaluate that friendship. That job is a blessing. And use the finances it gives you for my glory, God says. All all that we do is sacred when we're the Lord's. And I wonder perhaps if we are way more comfortable and we want to just keep those things separate and divided. The problem is the scriptures don't give us that luxury. Certainly in all the scriptures, what we see as the ultimate example of humble, gracious character is found in Jesus. Jesus is our example. He is the king of kings who took on flesh. He is the one who ate with the lowly. He's the one who went to the tax collector and said, look, I'm going to come to your house today and eat. Christ healed the sick. Jesus spent time with those that society had put on the margins. He ministered to the poor, and he did so out of humble and compassionate motives. And though the people wanted a king, Jesus came to serve. He never faltered in his speech or his conduct, but he remained consistent even when facing death. His mouth did not utter any rumors or spin lies to avoid the cross. See, the character of Christ remains central to who it is that Christ is. And so for you and for me, if we claim Christ today, the character of Christ is our example. Boaz may be nice to look at and to evaluate, but it actually is Christ's character that we're called to replicate. We're called to live like, to model in our lives, because when we're in Christ, we're part of the family. When I would take trips with students, I took students from northern Maine to West Virginia and to Pennsylvania and to northern Rutland, Vermont on missions trips. Right? And, and I did it enough to know there are helpful th- reminders for them. Things like, hey, don't forget, when we go in Wendy's in a few moments, you represent this church. To some extent, you represent me you represent your family. Cause I thought it was pretty simple to pass off the church thing. And even me, I'm not an idiot, but hopefully the family thing kind of resonated a little bit deeper with them. I said to say, hey, when you're about to be an idiot at the register, is that what your mom and dad taught you? And then I coached soccer, and then that was even worse. <laughs> But essentially, we're trying to remind those kids in those moments, look, you're part of a family. Represent that family well. Look, if you are in Christ today, you're part of the family. And so we are to represent our Heavenly Father and to represent Him well. Paul says in Romans 5, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, for you and for me, Who we are in Jesus, man, it's what we're to be about. We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God because of Christ. And we can actually see our sufferings as ways that will produce endurance that is meant to keep us pressing ahead in the character that Christ calls us to. That's what Paul meant when he said endurance produces character and character produces hope. And he says, look, actually it will likely be in your suffering, in your struggling, when things don't go as planned, in those moments, that's when your character will be produced and built and sharpened. And this is exactly what we see taking place in both Ruth and Boaz. Things did not go according to plan for Ruth. But we saw a character, didn't we? When she decided to provide for Naomi. Naomi. Boaz is woken up to find this woman at his feet and we're seeing his character being revealed. That he does the right thing and that he will in fact become a redeemer. See, so woven in the story of Ruth is an example of character and a reminder, I think, for us say that who we are, it matters. So let's ask the question then. If we were a poll, people that know you well, what would they say about you? What would they say about me? What about my character, and what is your character? What are things that they would would just quickly rattle off? Oh, she's nice. He's helpful. So look, we know those things. Really, tell me about them. Maybe they say things like, it seems like I have to call them to hang out all the time. They don't really call me. They say things like, well, they're fun, but beyond that, I really don't know. What would people say about us that really know us? I don't say this to guilt you, but if that's what God's spirit is doing right now. We call that conviction in the family of God. But I pose the question to ask, what about your life shows Jesus? See, the beauty, though, listen, this is the beauty of all of this. Asking about character, asking about what of your life shows Jesus, what marks your life as different than is the good person in our culture? If you feel like you're not measuring up, if you feel like there's work to be done in your life, let me encourage you with this. If there is still breath in your lungs, then Christ can still work in you. His Holy Spirit is still present and it seeks to refine us as we labor to become more like Christ. And so, what can you do? It's very simple. Invite the Spirit to lead the process and get out of the way. Get out of the way. Lord, show me where I am not representing you well. And then don't don't be offended with what he shows you. It's likely if he's showing you, other people have already seen it. But be, be grateful that he actually showed you an area in your life that you may not have seen right in front of you. Or be grateful that he again showed you and put in front of you something that you've been working on for decades, it seems. And then remember that if God calls you to work in that or to surrender that area of your life to him, he doesn't say, hey, just pull your bootstraps up and work hard. He says, look, my spirit, the one that just led you to this thought, is also going to help you through this. And beg and plead and ask the Spirit to be something and to do something that you can't do on your own. To lead you in this process. And then remind yourself that your endurance will in fact produce character. And you know what that character does? It produces hope. Hope that God is working. Hope that God is changing. I'll finish with this. I'll invite the worship band to come up. That's fine. I can remember, um, which, which seemed to be a rhythm for me, and perhaps was your experience too in life, that I would go to a camp every summer and, and kind of feel like my last year tanked, right? Didn't go very well. And, and here I find myself at this Christian camp being confronted with this speaker who really, I believe, was was convicting in a way that the Spirit was leading him. And here I am, Right, typically on a Thursday, Wednesday night, Thursday night, routine of a week-long camp, feeling like God has has kind of weighing in on me again, and I'm feeling like I'm not worth, like how could God possibly be okay with this, this constant struggle? I can remember having that moment of temptation of here I am again. And then by God's grace, someone who I appreciate just stepped into that moment and said, listen, the fact that you might be here again is actually encouraging because it's evidence that God's spirit is again working in you. And that was huge for me. I was probably 17 years old. 20 years later, that's still a hopeful reminder for me that when God convicts us, actually he's saying, look, we're not done working yet. So if God has convicted you today, that actually is a good thing. He's working in you. He's not done yet. So character produces hope. What's that hope? We have the Spirit, and God's still at work. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate communion together. And communion, again, for us here at State Street, is always a moment to remember and to celebrate. And so so what are we remembering this morning through the taking of communion? We're remembering that we need to be rescued. And that if we are in Christ, that we have been rescued. That that is our identity. Paul reminds us about the establishing of this practice. He says this in 1 Corinthians, For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. But the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup, and after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Then he goes on and says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so there's a warning right here that we remember that that we needed to be rescued and that Christ in fact supplied as the great rescuer says, look, this isn't just a meal. This is not your your pre-lunch snack today. He says, do this in remembrance of me. As you're about to take the piece of bread, just dip it in the cup and eat, you're remembering that we're lost in our sin, but then we're celebrating. Because when we're in Christ, that's not our identity. We are not still in our sin. God does not look at you and say, sinner. He says, you've been redeemed. You are restored. That's your identity. And so we're going to have some music, uh, song, and then just as you feel ready, we'd invite you to come and just take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and partake.